Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, David Henderson ponders a robot future. Cato's Jeffrey Singer talks about the opioid crisis. Mark Calabria makes the case against bailouts. And Lindsay Burke discusses if schools should be compelled to serve everyone. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Looking inward may not always be fun, but it's often productive. And in a time in which we are told that all Americans are becoming increasingly partisan, it's worth taking some time to examine how we look at issues of political and policy importance. And to talk about that, we have uh, joining us today Arnold Kling, author of the new revised edition of his must-read volume, The Three Languages of Politics, and Megan McArdle, columnist at Bloomberg View. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Arnold, you have these axes along which people uh, tend to view. Well, you just tell us how how we how do we look at how do people tend to look at uh, the world and and issues of of controversy. Okay, so let's pretend that these are actually how people look at things, and then I'll back up and say what I really mean by by these axes. So let's say that that the axis. The preferred axis for the progressive is oppressor and oppressed. There are certain classes of people that are inherently oppressed, others who are oppressors, and their heroes are people who have stood up for the oppressed and uh, fought the oppressors. And the villains are people who they view as siding with the oppressors. Uh, conservatives see a conflict between civilization and barbarism. Civilization is fragile. And there always are barbarians threatening to tear it down. Uh, so their heroes are people who've stood up for civilization, helped fight off the barbarians. And the villains are people who have failed to uh, deal with the problem of barbarism. And for libertarians, the axis is liberty coercion. They, uh, their heroes are people who have stood up for liberty, and the villains are people who have made excuses for government coercion. Now, having said all that, I don't want to say that these are the a nutshell version of those three ideologies. What they are are languages that people within those ideologies use to make statements that resonate with one another and to convince people within a, a given ideology not to change sides and not even to listen to the other side. All right. So uh, I'm trying to imagine slogans that are that specifically appeal to uh, one of these groups. And, um, you know, civilization versus barbarism is actually probably a pretty good slogan. But it, for uh, libertarians, progressives and conservatives, uh, I guess, how does that express itself in uh, things that we might read or see or come to understand about policy and politics? What you'll, what you'll see is that in a discussion, a progressive will think that when they've taken an issue and framed it in oppressor-oppressed terms, that they've played a decisive card and that once they've said it in those terms, there's just no room for reasonable disagreement. And similarly with conservatives on civilization barbarism and progressives on liberty coercion. Right. I mean, look at, you know, racist, sexist, anti-gay, blah, 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 go away, right? I mean, that's the perfect, it, it, it's, it it's doesn't dispositive. really, it's, it's dispositive and also it's not really an argument about ideas, right? It's not even an argument about a particular thing. It is a characterization of you are in opposition to these these three oppressed groups, and therefore you are illegitimate. All right. So uh, Middlebury, indeed, the recent uh, discussion by uh, Charles Murray, or at least he an attempted uh, discussion there at, at Middlebury resulted in him being shouted down off the stage and the uh, poor woman who was responsible for having brought him to campus 
being injured in the process. I don't think she brought him. I think she actually just in, she was the person who was she was the respondent. It was a student group who brought him. But yeah, she she was the intellectual opponent that was supposed to uh, answer him, but uh, that didn't prevent the students from uh, pulling on her hair and uh, injuring her. Well, I mean, it was sort of interesting with that chant, right? Which is that. Um, I don't think anyone's alleged that that Charles Murray, who who supports gay marriage, <laughs> is anti-gay. It was you know in part they just needed the rhyme, right? But it, it's also that you know, um, and I think this goes to what Arnold says is that there's this sense of like there is an oppressor, and then there's the oppressed, and all of the oppressed are over here, and all of the oppressors are over here. There's no kind of um, idea, despite the le- left's kind of focus on intersectionality and and so forth recently, is that. There's an oppressor group and an oppressed, and if you're a member of the oppressor group, you must be against all the oppressed people, right? There's no sense that you might be maybe oppressing one group and then oppressed yourself or being oppressed by other people, at least in the slogans, in the kind of like the the most reductive, simple, um, but also the most in some ways unifying, right? Like if you've ever been a protester, if you've ever been at these things, you know that even if you're not actually particularly into the cause, if you are standing at in, a, in the middle of a rally and these, these cheers are washing over you, it's incredibly powerful. It's this incredible sense of like merging into a group. And those things, that's the most kind of emotional, visceral root feeling that we have about politics. And those things tend to be very, very reductive. I think this was an incident. Obviously, it, it took place after the you know, even the revised edition of the book went to bed. But it, it once again illustrates the way that people react along those three axes. So how do progressives react? Uh, what I've seen is they, they, they sort of say, well, Charles Murray deserved it because, you know, he wrote the infamous The Bell Curve, and that allegedly becomes a tool of oppression. So, you know, very predictable response. Conservatives, you know, this is barbaric. Why aren't these stu- people in jail? And uh, libertarians generally saying, well, we, we need free speech. You know, let, let's, uh, they, didn't, they certainly didn't like the coercive behavior of, of the students. So in a way that there, there was this kind of predictable, you know, each tribe getting together and, and agreeing on its response. Now, you make uh, essentially two uh, claims about the languages that Libertarians, conservatives, and progressives use in, in their within their various groups, their tribes. One is yeah, you use the oppressor oppressed language or the civilization barbarism language or uh, like state versus the individual. Is that liberty a, coercion? Liberty coercion uh, to one elevate yourself within the tribe, and two to insulate other members of your tribe from the arguments from. Those other two groups. Yeah, you, you you try to convince your side. Look, look, the issue is resolved. We're right. They're wrong, and in the worst case, they're they're on the wrong side. So you know, if for the libertarian to get get really riled up, you say actually the, the other side, their their status, they they really want coercion. They really want the nanny state. They really they really want to you know control the economy, whatever. And their their ulterior motive is this thing that is like for for any of the groups that we're talking about if we disagree with someone on some matter it is deceptively easy to immediately go to their what we believe to be their core motivation which is oh they're on the side of the oppressors they're on the side of barbarism they're on the side of uh, coercion, coercion. The, yeah exactly and it's um and it, it's frustrating. You know, I, I wrote this book in part because I was frustrated that the tribes were getting hostile to one another. And so this is three years later, and I could look back and say that was the era of good feelings. Come, <laughs> come on. Uh, it's now sort of outrage politics. And uh, one of my goals, I mean, you know, so why bo- I almost say why bother writing this book? But it, for people who do read it, it may convince you to step out of your particular tribe and sort of try to look at the world from a, a view that's detached from your particular tribe. I think I, I find Arnold's book 
so useful. I, I use this framework all the time, um, in part because it, it really highlights and, and something that you've both just been talking about is is that um, this has always been a factor in American politics. And I, I've heard uh, Nicholas Ep- Epley, who's a psychologist at the University of Chicago, it's something like egotistical bias talk about this, is the way in which we frame issues as having one side and another, and we reduce them to this this binary. And then what you do is you assume, well, I care about something for this reason, and therefore the other people must care about it because they are against that reason. So I think the canonical example of this is abortion, right? Is you talk to people on the pro-life side, and they're like, well, those people just hate babies. And it's like, this is ridiculous. Many of them have babies, right? But you talk to people on the pro-choice side, and they're like, well, those women just ha- those those people just hate women. And this is ridiculous. Many of them are women, right? It's, um, but what they're saying is, look, what you have here, in fact, is a really, really hard moral choice where we can argue about whether a fetus is a baby or not. I think we can all agree that if nothing is done, it will be a baby pretty soon. Um, it will be a person. If you don't do anything, that will be a person. If you do something, that will no that person will die. Will essentially like die. Maybe maybe it's not in pain. Maybe it is. But it, it, that future life doesn't happen, right? Um, and that is a really difficult decision. And you have two really difficult, both incredibly important values: uh, the right of a woman to have bodily integrity and control what happens in her body, and the life that is not going to exist if you have an abortion. And so each side is actually fighting for something really positive and worthwhile. And because these two values are unfortunately not commensurable, right, one of them has to give, um, what they do is they end up framing it as, well, it's not that I'm fighting for this value and they're fighting for that value. I'm fighting for this value and they hate that value. And that is just an incredibly powerful thing for a long time in American politics, but it's gotten much worse. It's really gotten to the point where it seems to me from from maybe because of social media, maybe for some other reason, is that we are no longer able to imagine that anyone who is not us, who is not a member of our tribe, is fighting for anything worthwhile. It's entirely a matter of I am fighting for good things and then there are all those people who just hate good things. Yeah, the, the, that raises a question, so why that, you know, why that is and you know, and why does it seem so acute now? And I'll just throw up a couple of random answers that have occurred to me. One is that sort of politics is increasingly occupying the space that was used to be occupied by religion, and religion has always had this sort of Manichaean outlook of you know good versus evil. Uh, so politics may be stepping into that. And the other, you, you mentioned social media, and my sense of what social media do is that they induce an immediate reaction. And, you know, as Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman would say that, that that's going to trigger system one, that your, your emotions, your fight or flight reaction. Whereas in when you don't have the immediacy of the internet, if you have time to react to something, you may react differently. Like, like you know, I have been blogging for years and, and I've for, for several years had the practice of scheduling posts several days in advance because I want to avoid, because what I, what I write that's immediate, an immediate response to something is always, almost always more angry and less rational uh, than otherwise. But I, th- I think the, the immediacy of social media kind of contributes to this, um, the intensity of the political reaction. So we don't get to the point where we can sit down and uh, consider, entertain an idea rather than simply react to it. Yeah, I think if you actually had to sit down for a couple of days and write a letter to the editor, as in the old days, and then have the hope, you know, have the editor know that the editor was going to read it and consider it, I think that would be a little different than you know, dashing off a tweet. I think someone here is standing athwart history yelling stop. Yeah. Or go back. Well, I'm old enough to do that. <laughs> you know, I think there's, the, it's too that it blurs this this line that we used to have between public and private, right? And it's funny to me, all of these, uh, these things that were happening during the Obama administration of how to go home and discuss politics with your family. It's like my family actually 
Mosley stays away from politics and Thanksgiving because we don't want to fight with each other. Um, you know, on, on Trump, where my mom is from Trump country, uh, and we knew the family was divided, there was a don't ask, don't tell policy on Facebook. I mean, I couldn't abide by this, right? I was writing a bunch of columns on politics. But in general, I don't know which way. I know some of my relatives voted for Trump. I don't know which ones. I don't want to know. Because, it, and it's actually been very funny for me as I've started getting to be more friends with people from high school and college and business school and so forth, is it, you know, yes, I would have kind of assumed that most of the people I knew in high school were uh, liberal because I grew up in Manhattan. Uh, but in fact, one guy I went to high school with is now working, he's now a conservative, uh, you know, media consultant. Um, but what it is is you're now finding out more about people's views but at the same time, what you don't have is even when my, my family does sometimes argue politics. Um, you know, my father's family are all in government. We talk about it. But when you're with someone, right, you, you have this sense of you're about to go over the line. You can look at someone's face and say, oh, I am making this person very angry and being insulting. And then you stop. Um, so what you have is this, this thing where it's very easy to organize yourselves into tribes. It's very easy to go too far, and it's very easy to alienate people who aren't. And I know a ton of people who – there were a bunch of people that I frankly thought about unfollowing during the election, not even because, look, I am in the middle of the fray, right? I'm getting emails every day from everyone, but it was so wearing of these people who I signed up to, like, see what their baby pictures were. Okay. And every day it was these just endless, endless, Trump is great, Trump is terrible – I didn't want to see it. I just wanted to, anyone who was posting politics, I just wanted to unfollow them. But for most people, that's not what they do. What they do is they unfollow all the people who disagree with them. And then those are bad people. And, you know, you, so you end up very much isolated into the sense that simultaneously that everyone agrees with you and, and at the same time pushing away all of the people who don't. And all of the people who are disagreeing with you, the sentiments that you are seeing are completely disconnected from the actual people. Right. And that's the other thing, right, is that what gets shared on Facebook from the other side by your friends, it's like really outrageous and stupid things. No one's ever like, hey, this is a really good argument. I found it extremely challenging. I'm not sure what I think anymore, right? It's always like, yeah. can you believe this moron in Alabama in a town I've never heard of before? Like this guy, look at what he said. Or, you know, similarly, this per this random like college student on, on, at NYU, look how terrible they are. Um, and, and so it, it, it brings, whereas people, partly that it used to be curated, but even more that it's everywhere. It is intruded into everything. And we used to wall that stuff off so that we could preserve relationships. And now instead, we're building our relationships around our politics. Yeah, you you want to ask all these people, when did you read something on Facebook that changed your mind, that really made you think, oh, I was wrong about this, and now I know what's right. No, what all of it does is, you know, I, I like to say you, you could be trying to change someone else's mind. You could be trying to change the minds of the people on your own side, or you could be trying to close the minds of the people on your own side. And all, I would say pretty close to 100% of the Facebook-type uh, political posts, if you really get down to it, are intended to close the minds of the people of your own side. And that was one of the things that I, I sort of noticed that made me you know, write the book is say, well, wait, you know, let's, that, that's really a silly way of, of conducting yourself, trying to close the minds of people on your own side. Here, you know, here, here's another way to think about it to, to maybe get you to stop doing that. Well, and here's a, here's a sort of fascinating thing that I've noticed, which is that you know, a lot of people don't like me. Uh, I, I take fairly, you know, strong stands on a bunch of issues. What's really interesting to me is that I will write something that the people who don't like me will agree with. And I'm not doing it for some sort of ulterior motive. I just happen to agree with them on some issue, and it might surprise them. Um, and, you know, sometimes I actually have really surprising success with this. I remember being on MSNBC. This has happened a couple times to me and my husband of, like, having inadvertently moved to the left of the people who are around me and having this just kind of shocked, like, not knowing what to do. So, for example, once we were talking about uh, the Detroit bankruptcy and what had happened to the pension funds, and I said, yes, and this is really shocking. If you think about the leaders of that pension fund and the fact that they were supposed to take care of their workers and they weren't, they just abandoned that duty and were irresponsible. <laughs> and, and these poor workers who've just been, and like there was this 
oh, right. Uh, you know, but I actually I feel that very strongly, right? You, you run a pension fund. You have a real strong duty to your workers. You cannot be irresponsible with it. Those people are depending on you. Um, but in other cases where I'll write something and I will get these angry emails from people being like, how dare you? How dare you say this thing I agree with? Because this is all, <laughs> this is just part of, or they'll find some way in which I was trying to subtly undermine them. No, I was I was agreeing with you. I, maybe I didn't make the argument that well, but it's not a, a fifth column activity where I <laughs> slide in and pretend that I think, you know, it's just... Um, like, I've argued for eliminating the estate tax, uh, for actually 100 percent estate tax. Now, I actually think practically there are a bunch of problems with this, but it's a justice issue, right? You know, you, the fact is, once you're dead, I don't actually think you have kind of a continuing interest in what happens afterwards. Um, and I think it would be perfectly just to have 100 percent estate tax. I think there are practical reasons not to do it. But I got so much hate mail from people who were like, you're just trying to make us sound like communists. So it's like, no, I am the communist here. I'm not actually trying to make anyone else except me sound like a communist on this issue. Now, maybe I'm uh, biased uh, on this subject. And of course, since reading Arnold's book, I am more aware of biases that I may possess. And that's one of the reasons I commend uh, the three languages of politics available at libertarianism.org. <laughs> Uh, and Amazon.com too, but it, and maybe I'm biased, and but maybe it's also because libertarians, relatively speaking, are few in number. Uh, that I will see attacks on uh, groups that have some libertarian tendencies, like the American Legislative Exchange Council, for example, for mostly from the progressive side. But they will focus their firepower on things that relate to taxes relate to spending, relate to uh, various other things, and give not only no lip service to, but complete zero discussion at all of their work on, say, reducing mandatory minimum sentences or, or things like that. Yeah, I think uh, I think libertarians are really spurned lovers as far as that goes. I mean, they, they keep wanting to walk up to progressives and say, see, we're for... Uh, you know, getting rid of drug laws and for gay marriage and, you know, all these things. Can and we be friends? Can we be friends? And, you know, sometimes the progressives will pocket that. And, but uh, the, then when it turns down to issues where progressives are, uh, and libertarians don't agree, like on economic freedom, uh, you don't get anywhere. Well, and, it's, and does it then become... Because you you haven't bought into the whole package of ideas, your uh, agreement with me on these other issues is essentially meaningless. Is is that what it reduces I, I, to? I think yeah, that sounds like similar to what what Megan encounters. It's like uh, if you don't if you're not really with my tribe, no, you're, you're then you're not you're not really with me. What's interesting, actually, is that conservatives are willing to have uh, libertarians in the House, so to speak, right? They're, uh, uh, conservatives are in general. Um, some of them. Somewhat. Now, I, I would say that in general they are more friendly to libertarians. That doesn't mean that they are um, – I mean, there's a lot of issues, obviously, where and, – and, and look, I have um, – I'm, I'm – Basically, I've been, you know, I get kicked out of the feminist movement, the libertarian movement, like three times a week by someone who's like, you're not really, you know. But um, I, I basically, you know, I, I spent a lot of time arguing about Trump. And boy, my pro-Trump readers did not like what I said about him at all. At the same time, though, a lot of people, even those who are pro-Trump, stuck with me in a way that progressives who find me through some of my more progressive stuff, tend not to stick around. They get very angry. Um, and I don't know why that is. And I, I don't know that part of it isn't just the tribalism, that, that during the Cold War, right, there was a real obvious alliance between libertarians who hated communism and conservatives hated, who hated it for somewhat different reasons. But, you know, nonetheless, let's get together with the godless market-hating, <laughs> against the godless market-hating communists. And because of that, I, I think conservatives still see us more as part of the tribe than progressives do who just feel like we are against all of the most important things. And I think as identity politics have become more central, that hasn't changed, which is somewhat interesting yeah. to me. Well, I mean, very recently somebody just 
wrote like a one-line comment on my blog, libertarianism is just racism. So, I mean, that's if, if that's where you are. <laughs> that's all it is. <laughs> yeah, that's In all. fact, it's a... Uh, so, you know, that's a classic case of somebody who's on the oppressor-oppressed axis categorizing people who disagree as being on the oppressor side. I mean, you know, you go to an occupational license, a panel on occupational licensing, and people are like, okay... I see your argument, but is this bad for black people? Because if it's not. <laughs> so, um, Arnold, you and I talked a long time ago, and I, I, I think I've put this to you before, and uh, I forget what you, what you said about it. But one of the key differences between uh, libertarians and conservatives, as I have always seen it, is that uh, libertarians tend to view all the, all the good things of civilization as emergent, and that conservatives tend to take a lot of those institutions that have arisen as given and then defend those things, whereas libertarians would tend to defend the emergence itself. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. And another difference is that uh, libertarians are not af at all afraid, in fact, would many would rejoice in getting rid of or drastically reducing one of, one of those institutions, the government. And conservatives are a little bit, are definitely more paralyzed on that because, you know, even though they may want to agree that smaller government is better, uh, a drastic reduction in government is not a conservative thing to do. And, uh, you know, they, you, and so there's that conflict. And even, I think, where and you're starting to see some of the split, I think, on, on a Republican replacement for Obamacare. And I, I think, actually, I have fallen more on the kind of Burkean side and much to the disappointment of some of the libertarians I know is that um, there's, you know, libertarians are often more in favor of, like, radical action. Like, just get rid of it. Just no more Social Security, right? I mean, I've got a tattoo. It just says, just get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, whereas conservatives are more worried about what's going to happen next, et cetera, and they tend to want more slow action. They tend to do incremental things. And the disappointment for libertarians had been for a huge, you know, decades, that what you would then get was these things where it was like, okay, New Deal light, with now with 15% fewer regulations, right? Um, but I think that there is, and you're seeing this with Obamacare because there's now this kind of, well, yes, but if we just get rid of it, there's going to be massive disruption in the market. It's going to be politically difficult, but it's also going to mean a lot of people who might have had insurance in 2012 are suddenly not going to be able to buy it in 2018. Let's think a little harder about this. Um, well, I'm going to take the libertarian side on that. I feel like, you know, <laughs> if you just leave it to progressives and conservatives, progressives aren't worried about sudden change. So they'll take something two steps forward. And conservatives are worried about sudden change. So they'll take something half step back. And then the, the equilibrium there is, is not at all libertarian. Uh, I, look, I, I actually I recognize this is a huge problem. At the same time, when I actually contemplate the problems of, say, getting rid of Social Security after decades, right, where a bunch of people... They shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't have relied on it. It's not a stable system. It was not a good system to put into place. That said, they did. And you really tell someone at the age of 60, like, oops, we were just kidding. There's no Social Security anymore here. Like, go, yeah. you know, go be free. I, 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 that there are, there is path dependence in politics that... Um, it's not that I don't think don't, that— Don't you understand that if people just invest in the stock, if took their, their Social Security <laughs> money and invested in the stock market, they would earn 10 percent and then um, they would all, it would all live happily ever after? No, I, I, by the way, that's the opposite of my view. I've argued against that view a lot. There's no, there's no free lunch way out of Social Security. Right. Well, I actually think that this is, this is a problem for the libertarian moment is in some ways libertarians have been gathering the low-hanging fruit, Right. We'd cut the things that were easy to cut, and now we're down to, you know, we'd attack some of the, the more ridiculous re regulations, the kind of really sclerotic labor market regulations and so forth. There's been backwards pressure on uh, from progressives, but I think overall corporate regulation looks worse than it did 10 years ago. But if you look at the labor market and compare it to, say, 1978, it seems to me obviously much freer. The problem with that is that we're now at the stuff like entitlements. Those are the major issues. And those things have such path dependence and they're so large that it's hard for us to make forward progress. And I think that's one reason that you see libertarians being so frustrated with conservatives. But so we've won. I've taken us far afield, so I, I apologize. So, Arnold, one of the things that, that you are careful to point out 
is, is that in your book, it is meant to be a tool for you to use for evaluating yourself, and it is a tool to evaluate sort of your dominant heuristic and trying to understand, appreciate arguments from other sides, and that it is not a, a tool to be trotted out as like a parlor trick to uh, fool the other side into thinking that you're with them on issues when you are not. Right. Or, and, uh, you know, or to attack the other side. One analogy I've used, if, if anyone's been in a large organization and taken a personality test like a Myers-Briggs test, the goal of that isn't so that you can sort of, you know, say, oh, you're this type of personality, no wonder, you know, no wonder you're wrong on all these things. Uh, but it's to, to sort of appreciate the, uh, that there are differences and to step away from differences and to be able to say, well, gee, I, I guess if I looked at it from the point of view of someone who had this outlook, I would see it more the way they do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So it, there is, I've, I've spoken about this with uh, Anthony Kamegna here at the Cato Institute and Steve Horowitz on uh, this so-called unicorn governance, this idea that, uh, you know, once we get, once we have achieved the things that we care about, that is libertarians, conservatives, or progressives, what are the other problems that we ought to concern ourselves with? And should we also concern ourselves with those problems right now? Like, so if, if it's civilization versus barbarism, maybe it is uh, something to do with privilege that that uh, conservatives ought to focus on, or for libertarians, uh, once we've gotten the state out of everything, maybe we actually should focus on all the that civil society giving that we're that we're talking about all the time. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. So, what what sort of anticipate? Suppose you won, uh, even on some issue, uh, what you know, would that produce? Nirvana. Or, you know, which is what your initial instinct is, or would the problems that the other people worry about, w would you suddenly start to, to notice them more? I think that's a, that's a good, good thought. I, uh, I used to live with a, uh, an anarcho-capitalist. Um, but it was, it was interesting is that we would have these, like, as, as one does if you're a libertarian living with an anarcho-capitalist, these long arguments that would go on for hours, and we would sort of dawn breaking over the Hudson River. We would sort of finally wrap up. But one thing that he actually said to me was really interesting was that he said, um, the thing that worries me most about anarcho-capitalism, because he's also from a small religious community uh, from a very conservative part of the world. And he said, and the thing that you know about those these kinds of communities is that it tends to be that like your family, the government is weak, but the family is incredibly strong, and like everything comes to your family, right? Your house comes to your family, your job comes to your family, everything. You can't get away from them. And he loves his family. Don't get me wrong, but he said what really worries me is that we get rid of government, and then it would just turn out that what would replace it would be all of these tight social networks that would be more oppressive than the government. And that's something that, like, I, you know, I, I actually, I think, Caleb, what you said is so important, is that if libertarians want to say that private charity could do the work of government, libertarians right now should be making private charity do the work of government. If conservatives want to say that we don't need these government programs to fix what are obviously gross inequities in our society, then conservatives better figure out how to fix those gross inequities right now. And these are the things that, that we need to think about is, is do we get nirvana uh, and if we're going to get nirvana, how are we preparing for that now beyond just saying nirvana would be great? All right. We're going to leave it there. Megan McArdle, columnist at Bloomberg View, and Arnold Kling, author of the new revised edition of his must-read volume, The Three Languages of Politics, available at libertarianism.org and better booksellers. And, of course, you can find out more about that at our website, cato.org. The robot revolution is coming, and it's not clear where it ends with respect to jobs, let alone lots of other parts of our lives. David Henderson is Associate Professor of Economics at the Graduate School of Business and Public Policy at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He's also a blogger at EconLog. He presented an optimistic view at the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary celebration in May. So, will robots destroy jobs? 
that old answer that economists like, it depends. Um, as Ronald Reagan liked to say, let's take a trip down memory lane. <laughs> let's look at automation through history. And let's look first at Arkwright's cotton spinning machinery. Introduced in 1760, at the time, England had 5,200 spinners, 2,700 weavers for a total of 7,900. 1796, long after that innovation, has dramatically changed that industry. 320,000 spinners and weavers. That's a, almost a 4,000% increase. Why the huge increase? Economists call it elasticity of demand. Those, that technology just crushed the cost of producing clothing. And clothing, if you see some of those old novels, you know, they, they didn't have much. And so a whole bunch of people were priced into the market. And instead of having one pair of pants, sometimes had two. Amazing. And, and many more people had clothing. So there's, it's not a sure thing that this technology will destroy jobs, even in that industry. But now let me give you an industry where it did destroy jobs, and that is U.S. agriculture. 1900, 41% of the U.S. labor force was in agriculture, down to 2% in 2000. The labor force, of course, in 1900 was 27 million. In 2000, it was 142 million. 41% of 276 million is 11.3. 2% of 142.6 million is 2.9. So not only did we do it with a much lower percent of the labor force, but we did it with actually fewer laborers and we are producing output, not just for the United States, but for the world. So yes, it did destroy jobs in that industry. Now the worry people have is that robots are human-like. Well, I got another big change in the labor force that happens. Women are actually human. <laughs> <laughs> they are really close substitutes for men in many areas. So let's look at what happened when women entered the labor force after World War II. 1950, 43.8 million men in the labor force, 18.4 females, million females. 2015, almost double the number of men and over four times the number of females. And of course, the total went way up. Maybe on some margins, men lost jobs, but not really. Now, of course, I'm looking at labor force, not employment, but unemployment goes up and down all the time. So the labor force is usually a better number to look at. I think there are three reasons the pessimistic predi predictions are too dim. One is what my co-blogger at EconLog, Brian Kaplan, calls the pessimism bias. People are just pessimistic. And it seems easier for people to be pessimistic than optimistic, both about the future and about current affairs in the world. And he regularly wins bets when he bets people against their pessimism. Therefore, I think it's reasonable to adjust up people's predictions. Second, this might sound a little strange, Brian Kaplan talks about the foreigner bias. Huh? What's this have to do with robots? Well, if you look at the way people talk about robots, many of them talk that way the, the way they talk about foreigners. Somehow they don't quite count. And uh, they're inherently biased against foreigners, and they say they'll take our jobs, and uh, there's that same bias with, with robots. And finally, the seen and the unseen, as the famous Fre French econ economist Frederick Bastier talked, about. It's much easier to point out jobs that have been destroyed due to robots than due to the ones than to the ones that have been or will be created. We don't know what those are. How should Americans address the opioid crisis in the U.S. today? Cato adjunct scholar Jeffrey Singer argues that prohibition is a big part of the problem, but that the media and public misunderstand how opioid addiction takes hold. Singer spoke on Capitol Hill in June. Heroin overdoses are actually eclipsing opioid overdoses. Okay, and in, so that that's important to understand that the number, the, the big, the big cause of our overdose problems now is heroin. Uh, what? Uh, studies, uh, excellent studies in, in the JAMA's, uh, JAMA Psychiatry recently in 2014 and 2017, two different studies found, number one, a lot of the uh, younger heroin users started off by using, using illicitly obtained prescription opioids and then moved on to heroin. Older heroin users 
that's not their history because they just went right to heroin. Um, and uh, we're also seeing, of course, that uh, um, it's, we're seeing heroin use much more prevalent now in people in upper socioeconomic groups and suburban and uh, among suburban people and rural white individuals is a population change. But according to the National Survey on uh, Drug Use and Health, it's important to understand only a quarter of people who take opioids for non-medical reasons get them by obtaining a prescription. So the uh, sequence that, very, that everybody thinks exists, I've, I just heard it mentioned on the news this morning, that a patient uh, gets narcotics for pain, gets hooked, and then eventually dies from an overdose is not your typical story. Um, and in fact, a, a 2014 JAMA study of 136,000 patients treated for opioid overdose in the emergency room found that just 13% of them were chronic pain patients. In fact, another CDC cites a study showing that uh, the opioid-related overdose rate for people who are on chronic pain medicine under the guidance of a doctor is 0.2% overdose rate. Um, new addictions to uh, people who take opioids for pain in, in general actually are pretty rare. Uh, Cochrane Review in 2010 found that the addiction rate of people put on prescription opioids was about 1%. Another study from the University of New Mexico, a meta-analysis done in 2014, uh, rated that between 8 and 12%. But the, the, important thing is this the important thing to understand is that it's not like doctors are prescribing a painkiller for a patient in pain who then gets hooked and becomes a uh, heroin addict. That's not the usual way. Um, the, both the CDC and the Texas A&M School of Pharmacy reported that what they're seeing, however, is that as pain patients who are physically dependent and are in pain are seeing themselves gradually cut off of pain medicine by their doctors who are concerned that they're getting pressured to stop prescribing, a lot of them are seeking pain medicine through the illicit drug market. And of course, when they go to the illicit drug market, um, they oftentimes buy uh, counterfeit opioids, oxycodone, Percocet. You don't know what's in it. You don't know what it's laced with. Oftentimes, it's laced with fentanyl. But what's also starting to happen is a lot of them are buying uh, heroin because heroin is, according, at least according to the CDC, is about one-fifth the price of street obtainable uh, prescription opioids. So uh, another thing that's happening that's driving this is the promotion of tamper-resistant opioids. The FDA is encouraging that, so pharmaceutical companies have been developing over the years drugs that are meant to be tamper-proof. In other words, you can't use them for anything other than the medicinal use for which it was prescribed. Well, first of all, it's important to keep, uh, it's important to keep in mind that a person getting a pain medication for pain by a doctor is not interested in crushing it and snorting it. He's interested in taking the pain medicine because the doctor recommended it for his pain. So this is only designed to try to punish or deter abusers. Now, it's interesting. Mark Twain you know, is famous for saying that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, many people may be aware that back during the days of alcohol prohibition, uh, the ethanol was still allowed to be produced for industrial use and, um, but the government required that the manufacturers put what they call a denatured alcohol. They put ingredients in there, impurities in there that would make it unpalatable so that bootleggers couldn't steal vats of ethanol and sell it you know, on a black market. But bootleggers are pretty resourceful people and they soon found out to distill that, those impurities out and they still sold it. So back in, in 1926, the government actually required uh, the industrial ethanol manufacturers to put methyl alcohol or methanol in it, also called wood alcohol, which you might have heard could make you blind when you drink it. That's where the expression drinking himself blind comes from. And put it, so they put methyl alcohol and benzene in it, among other things. And that, despite attempts, could not be uh, distilled out. So there are documented at least 10,000 deaths since 1926 from people who were drinking bootlegged alcohol that contained methanol and benzene. Um, that was the alcohol prohibition era's version of tamper-proof alcohol, and it resulted in unintended consequences, which was death. I'm sure nobody wanted to see people die. Well, the same thing's happening today with tamper-proof drugs. People are figuring out how to, uh, if, for example, if they made OxyContin in 2010. OxyContin was 
converted to a tamper-proof type. So what would happen is people, if they couldn't crush it anymore to, to snort it, they would figure out ways to boil it and make it into an injectable form and then inject it. A study published in the Canadian uh, Medical Journal uh, in 2015 found that, quote, in Ontario and the U.S., overall rates of opioid-related deaths have continued to rise since the uh, long-acting formulation of oxycodone, oxycontin, was replaced with a tamper-resistant formulation. Rather, there's increasing evidence that individuals shift to other opioids, including heroin. And of course, that's what ends up happening is uh, if it's too complicated to try to get around the tamper resistance aspect of it, if it's too much work, uh, just buy heroin. It's easier. It gets you what you want, and it's a lot cheaper. Um, in JAMA Psychiatry in 2015, uh, Cicero and Ellis found that uh, non-medical users of OxyContin switched to other opioids or to heroin after the tamper-proof reformulation of OxyContin replaced regular OxyContin in 2010. And of course, uh, very recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, the FDA totally banned Opana-ER. Opana is the brand name for oxymorphone, stronger than oxycodone, and it's a long-acting. Uh, it used to be very popular when it was obtained on a black market to crush it and snort it. They made it where it's not crushable. So a lot of people figured out how to boil it and inject it. And then there was this outbreak of HIV, it's particularly reported in the Indianapolis area, from people sharing dirty needles to inject the Opana ER. So all of these tamper resistance things are actually, I understand what they're trying to do, but they're actually creating a lot of the problems that exist. Another thing that's being done uh, to try to deal with, with the opioid situation is states now, all but one state, Missouri, have adopted PDMPs, or, or Prescription Drug Monitoring Programs. And what these programs do is they give us doctors a report card every, in our case in Arizona, every quarter, and you kind of, you see where you stand with respect to all of your colleagues in your specialty as to how many prescriptions you wrote for oxycodone, hydrocodone, et cetera. Uh, interestingly, it's not broken down by how many patients you saw, just how many prescriptions you wrote. Um, but it's, uh, uh, it ranks you, and there's, there's ranges from normal to outlier to extreme outlier. Uh, in, in some states, in Arizona starting in October, we're not going to be able to prescribe opioids for patients, uh, except in certain circumstances, like immediately in the hospital or in the, in the recovery room, uh, unless we consult that database on that patient to see what they're, whether or not they've gone to multiple pharmacies, et cetera. Well, what that ends up doing is that, that casts a chilling effect on us doctors. Nobody wants to be seen as an outlier believe me, because you don't know where that's going to lead. So it's pressured indirectly a lot of doctors to actually cut back on prescribing. And then a lot of the legitimately suffering patients of pain are driven to the illegal market where they get either laced opioids or they go to cheaper heroin. And of course, that's where the overdoses occur. A study just came out in May uh, from uh, University of Pennsylvania, Penn State, that examined the effect of PDMPs going back from 1999 to 2014, and they found, uh, I'll just give you the conclusion, which is PDMPs were not associated with reductions in drug overdose mortality rates and may be related to increased mortality from illicit and other unspecified drugs because it's probably sending people to the black market. All right, so what can we do from a policy standpoint? I'm a big advocate of what's called harm reduction. That's an approach to... Uh, the drug problem where it, I consider it very realistic. If, you, if you're going to not be able to stop all sorts of people from using these things, at least let's try to, to make, do what we can to make sure they don't kill themselves and harm themselves. Uh, an example of harm reduction is methadone maintenance, which has been around for decades, where you, you're basically replacing an addiction to heroin with an addiction to methadone in the form of a pill that when it gets absorbed from the gut, it prevents withdrawal, but it doesn't uh, give you the euphoria. And it's sort of like, you know, uh, an opioid version of a nicotine patch, a nicotine patch, a nicotine gum. Um, so that's one method. Another thing that's being used uh, very, in, in several countries, and that I think here in Washington, we require work from Washington to make it happen, is, this may sound weird, heroin maintenance programs. Now remember, heroin is diamorphine, which is a pharmaceutical that is available and used in many developed countries. In Switzerland in 1994, they started a heroin maintenance program. 
There's a criteria to be in it. They have to make sure you're not going to be trying to game the system. But you declare yourself a heroin addict. You come into a clinic in the morning. You're given pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine with a clean needle and syringe. A nurse is there watching you. You inject yourself, and then you leave. And you sign in, you sign out. This has been in effect since 1994. They even had a referendum in Switzerland about five years ago about whether or not to continue it, and the voters voted to continue it. Um, I can't give you the exact data on it, but I can tell you that what they found is a significant number of people, once they do this, they're not spending their whole day looking for their connection. A lot of them, they get a job. Some get married and have a family. Um, as they uh, resume a more conventional lifestyle, a significant number of them actually detox themselves off. Uh, there also is a smaller program like that in the UK that's been going on for about 10 years. And in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, there was one that just, I think it just began in December. So I, I think something, now to have something like that happen in this country obviously require legislation because this is a banned substance. But something that we could look at uh, in Washington is m making it possible, for example, for some heroin maintenance pilot programs to be, be, to, to be started. Again, this is harm reduction. And another thing uh, that I could argue uh, for harm reduction on, on the clinician standpoint is instead of pressuring us doctors through things like these prescription drug monitoring boards to decrease the amount of prescriptions we give to our patients, why don't you just let us be doctors? I mean, that's our job. So when I have a patient who has recovered from a major trauma surgery and I know he's physically dependent, he's asking me for another refill of oxycodone, and I think this has kind of been going on a little longer than it should be, what I do ethically as part of my profession is I have a discussion with my patient and I see if I can't get the patient to go along with me tapering him off. And, uh, and, and sometimes they're in denial. Uh, or if they're addicted, I could refer them to somebody who has more expertise in treating addiction, and if they're agreeable, I'll refer them. But if I'm faced with a, with a decision of, should I give this guy another prescription that'll, under the condition that he returns to see me in two weeks so we could talk about this again, or should I just cut him off and risk that he'll go get some counterfeit Percocet to some people he knows and maybe die of an overdose because there was fentanyl or carfentanil in it? I think you should leave that judgment call to me, the doctor. See, in my case, that'll be like a hard, if we could be, keep people on methadone maintenance, why can't I decide under close supervision to keep a person on oxycodone maintenance? There's no difference chemically. Um, and so my advice would be to stop interfering in the patient-doctor relationship. You're actually making it worse. In summary, I think it's pretty obvious that our opioid overdose problem is not a product of the patient-doctor relationship, it's a product of drug prohibition because it's the illegal market that has led to all these impurities and to people getting substances that kill people. So if you, we need to address the uh, drug prohibition, uh, not patient-doctor relationship. Rather than eliminate big financial bailouts, economist Mark Calabria argues that Dodd-Frank legislation enshrined them in federal law. Calabria is the chief economist of the vice president of the United States. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Banking Unbound event in Charlotte, North Carolina in June, where he made the case for ending bailouts altogether. I believe that one of the lessons we've learned from the long stagnation of Japan in the recent Europe Eurozone crisis is that when you keep failed institutions alive, particularly banks, this is extremely damaging to productivity growth. Uh, and for that reason, among others, I'm going to touch upon what we're going to try to do to end bailouts. I do want to remind you that uh, ending bailouts is the second of the seven principles stated by the president in the February executive order on core principles for regulating the financial system. Uh, of course, Dodd-Frank pays lip service to ending bailouts, but unfortunately the actual substance of Dodd-Frank is a bit different. Uh, while there is now a cottage industry of economists trying to estimate whether Dodd-Frank has credibly ended too big to fail, I would submit you need not run any more regressions. You simply need to read the text of Dodd-Frank. Sections 204 and 201, for instance, are very, very clear in their language that creditors can be rescued in a failing uh, institution, that these institutions can be kept alive by the FDIC. Um, to me, it's pretty clear what the law says, and the law continues to allow for bailouts. 
Now, I certainly will be in my more, and to be generous to say there is a path in Dodd-Frank to ending bailouts, but I do not believe it will be one to be chosen. Uh, we created a similar mechanism for Fannie and Freddie that would have imposed losses on creditors without any taxpayer cost. Of course, I think you recall we didn't choose that path, and nor will we choose it when Dodd-Frank. So to put it simply, if the regulators were not willing to take Freddie Mac into a receivership, then a larger, more complex institution like Citibank will certainly never be resolved uh, without taxpayer assistance under Dodd-Frank. Uh, this has to end. And I do think I want to certainly emphasize this is not a partisan position. Uh, whether you talk to Jeb Henschel or whether you talk to Elizabeth Warren, they would both tell you Dodd-Frank does not end bailouts. Uh, and while, of course, I think a lot of the public debate about bailouts saw these as simply unfair, I think that 2008 can be characterized by a different set of rules for small institutions that were allowed to fail rather than large institutions that were kept alive. Certainly the unfairness is an important part of it, but there's a far more pressing issue. Uh, and that's because I believe bailouts erode the regulation in modern financial institutions by other market participants. In fact, one can conclude that policymakers during the crisis were doing everything they could to stop market discipline from happening. By extending the safety net further, Dodd-Frank continues the unfortunate process of eroding market discipline. Uh, and despite what you might have read in Tim Geithner's book, if you've bothered to read it, uh, moral hazard is a very real phenomenon in the, in the credit markets. The moral hazard denialism, as I see it underpinning Dodd-Frank, to me is the greatest single threat to our financial system. It's equivalent to building a bridge or an airplane and denying the existence of gravity. For this reason, among others, the President in April directed the Treasury Secretary to refrain from the use of Dodd-Frank's Title II orderly resolution process. So should a firm become insolvent, my suggestion would be that that firm uh, look for a good bankruptcy lawyer rather than hire an army of Washington lobbyists, because we will not be returning their calls. There are, of course, other important considerations of financial regulation, but I believe the desire to protect financial entities from market discipline, from failure, is the root of much of what is wrong with financial regulation. For instance, policymakers have long limited competition in the name of creating franchise value, believing banks would better behave if they had something to lose. And of course, there is a logic to that position. Uh, there is also a very real cost, however, to the economy, particularly consumers, from restricting competition. This lack of competition and protection from failure also undermines the provision of high-quality goods and services. Instead of allowing the market to weed out bad practices, financial regulation all too often protects the worst actors, witness the continued existence of Fannie Mae. All this undermines productivity growth, because we know in a capitalist society, bankruptcy is a critical avenue for moving resources from less productive companies to more productive companies. An important theme of our approach to financial regulation will be more regulation by market participants. Such will result in more accountability, something currently lacking in our um, existing system. Accountability must also extend to financial regulators. I very much reject the notion that our regulators need to be protected from their democratically elected representatives. Um, no regulator, for instance, has historically been enjoyed as much independence as the Federal Reserve, yet I would suggest that no regulator performed as poorly before and during the crisis as the Federal Reserve. So I would reject using that model for other regulators such as the CFPB. While changing institutions is important, an immediate change can be made to personnel, uh, and given the great discretion given the regulators by Dodd-Frank, changes to personnel can have significant implications for financial regulations. Among those changes is replacing regulators who favor bailouts with those who oppose bailouts. Uh, and I will, I will note I probably spend about a fourth of my day every day doing nominations work, interviewing people, talking to people. And while we have been slow with getting some nominations in place, part of the reason for that is we've put a tremendous amount of emphasis in making sure we get the right people in place who understand that it is businesses that create jobs, not government. Uh, and that getting regulators in place who understand that the occasional institutional failure must be allowed to happen rather than rescues. Uh, so again, real emphasis on trying to get the right viewpoints in place in terms of regulation uh, and not having regulators emboldened by a whatever it takes attitude, but an attitude of following the law, living within the law. Uh, and again, let me also emphasize I favor this approach even when it hurts. You can witness the recent decision by Labor Secretary uh, Acosta on the so-called fiduciary rule. I think that's a horrible rule and should go away, 
but the Labor Secretary noted correctly in my mind that you need to do this the right way. You need to do this through another regulation. You must take notice and comment. And so while that be a painful decision, uh, I believe the Labor Secretary made the right decision. Uh, and again, we've got to follow the rules if we expect the regulators to follow the rules. Uh, so perhaps it's my time as a Senate staffer, but it does bear remembering that process is important. The widespread disregard for the law exhibited by our financial regulators and other policymakers encouraged a similar disregard among the regulated. So not only must we restore a culture of trust and integrity among financial institutions, we foremost must reestablish that among financial regulators. Should all schools serve everyone? Should private schools be compelled to take all comers? And what would that mean for education of young people in America? Lindsay Burke, director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, discussed that idea at the Cato Institute in June. So I, I think it's useful to start off by thinking about sort of a basic idea of what is a private school? What's a good sort of working definition of what we mean when we talk about private schools? A private school is a community that orients itself around a common purpose. They are often built around a belief system that sometimes includes and often includes codes of conduct. Some private schools have a mission to provide students an education of a single sex, all girls, all boys schools. Other private schools operate around a certain pedagogy. Montessori schools are a good example. And some are designed to serve children that only have specific special needs. So schools designed just to serve students who have autism, for example. And of course, there are still others that operate according to deeply held religious beliefs. For example, providing a Catholic education to students. But in each case, these communities are clear upfront about who they are and the type of education that they provide. And they are clear with parents up front about that mission and orientation. And if their educational mission aligns with the values that parents seek to reinforce in their own children, families can then select into those schools and in many cases do so precisely because of the value system that the school operates under and because those beliefs align with their own. So it's like other nonprofit institutions and private institutions, private schools are simply providing their education in exchange for tuition, and then families then have the choice to pay for the education that those schools provide. These are private schools that parents have specifically sought out because of their mission and who they are as an organization. So in my opinion, that's sort of a good working definition of what a private school is and what it means to operate as a mission-specific school. So if that is the working definition, I think that from there some basic principles then apply. Private schools as private entities should be able to set their admission standards and retain a code of conduct that reflects their values. And this is simply because living in a free society means allowing for this kind of pluralism, which in, turns, in turn means having a variety of schools that specialize. If private schools cannot operate according to their beliefs, then we don't have meaningful school choice anymore, whether or not it's publicly funded or otherwise. Ridding ourselves of this type of diversity rids us of the core of what America is. So what does this mean exactly for the issue at hand? This event asks whether schools should be required to serve everyone. This issue has come up in recent weeks, uh, in particular within a school choice framework. Education Secretary DeVos has been posed similar questions uh, several times over the past few weeks. And you often hear something to the effect of, should a private school that receives public money be able to deny admission to certain students? That's typically the refrain that we hear. And First, I think we should really dispel this myth of public money, right, from the very beginning. I love how Margaret Thatcher explained it. Her stance was the state has no source of money other than the money people earn themselves. There is no such thing as public money, only taxpayers' money. So parents, of course, are taxpayers themselves, and they deserve to be able to direct their money to schools that work for their children. Second, freedom of association is a two-way street, right? If Planned Parenthood 
has to allow pro-lifers on staff, that undermines their mission. PETA should not be forced to hire a hunter who comes to a job interview donning rabbit furs. The human rights campaign should not have to hire someone who believes in traditional marriage, that it's between one man and one woman. Private entities and nonprofits should be able to operate in a way that supports their missions, and that goes for nonprofits like schools. So a private school, by extension, should be able to operate around a pride theme if they want. And in fact, this is not a hypothetical. I was looking the other day at the Atlanta Pride School, which is a private school that operates in, in Atlanta and has their mission is, quote, to build an inclusive community of LGBTQQIAA-friendly and accepting mentors, business practices, educators, and experts, and that offers a progressive education. That is their mission. It's their prerogative as a private organization to operate according to their values. And parents are free to choose that school. But they should also be free to choose a school that has a historical understanding of marriage. And I have no dog in this fight, but parents do. And parents should be able to choose what works for them. The other thing is we know that private schools do a good job when it comes to instilling tolerance and instilling civic values generally. Research consistently finds that private schools increase the political tolerance of children who attend them and the civic values that, that they hope to enhance do in fact, through all of the empirical evidence we have, tend to be enhanced through private schooling. So the bottom line is this. Reasonable people can disagree about sensitive issues pertaining to conduct. But private schools are communities that are built around a common belief system. Living in a free society requires that we respect the right of private institutions to operate according to their deeply held beliefs, even when we profoundly disagree with their position. But the good news is that allowing for pluralism creates a variety of options, and robust school choice ensures that parents and families are able to pick what works for them and that they can choose schools that align with their values and their missions. History and philosophy are indispensable for understanding and defending liberty under our constitutionally limited government. Join us in Philadelphia this fall as Cato University's College of History and Philosophy brings these two powerful subjects together to explore the foundations of liberty and justice, of wealth and poverty, of individual rights, and the rule of law. Visit CatoUniversity.org for further details and to register. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.